Welcome to Integrative Conversations, hosted by the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. The Academy expands knowledge to professionals in the mental health community and beyond using a conscious, experiential, and evidence-based format. Our mission is to deliver comprehensive health and wellness to all by empowering personal and professional growth and confidence. To learn more, visit us at www.academyimh.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, I'm Juniper Owens, Director of the Academy of Integrative Mental Health and your host for today's Integrative Conversation. I recently had an inspiring conversation with Yolanda Harper, LCSW, who is the co-founder of Harper Therapy in Lutz, Florida. Yolanda is an Accelerated Resolution Therapy, or ART, therapist specializing in trauma and post-traumatic growth. In this conversation, we discuss ART and how Yolanda views trauma through a holistic lens. Trauma comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes trauma shows up from a single event, such as a car accident, natural disaster, or an assault. Trauma can be experienced over time as a chronic stressor in the body. This can show up for survivors of intimate partner violence, both as a recipient or witness, continuous community violence, child abuse or neglect, and folks who are in chronic states of stress and war situations, for example. Trauma can also be inherited generationally or can be external in the cases of racism and genocide. And all over the world, we are experiencing a type of stress that can be traumatic for some associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. At this stage in the game, many folks are experiencing, including myself, pandemic fatigue and COVID burnout. According to Alyssa Eppel and Elena Former with the University of California, San Francisco Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, there are several ways this fatigue and burnout is manifesting. Many people are feeling tired all the time. Have you heard that from your clients? Our mind, even unconsciously, is taking on the mental work of living with uncertainty, and that is exhausting. It requires a certain amount of our attention and vigilance all the time. Or new demand to our attention, called attentional overload, such as checking the news more frequently. And lastly, mental Zoom fatigue is a thing. I'm reading directly from the article here, which is linked in the show notes, because it seems relevant to many of us who are doing telehealth, Zoom meetings, and even interactions with family and friends virtually. Mental Zoom fatigue is partly due to this demand on our attention. We're used to interacting with people in person, where we get strong signals from them, from body language, voice, and emotional expressions. On Zoom, all we get are weak signals. We need to strain harder to read the situation, context, and content, all at the same time. Plus, we may be dealing with a Brady Bunch box of 10 faces at one time. Part of the problem with Zoom is that we're used to synchrony, the range of precisely timed vocalizations, gestures, and movements to communicate and rely on precise responses from others to determine if we're being understood. 
A delay of even a few milliseconds causes our brain's extra work to overcome the desynchrony. We recommend limiting Zoom meetings to 50 minutes instead of the full hour to give yourself a break. You could also consider, consider making phone calls instead. We recognize that healing from thriving in trauma, no matter the form, is vital, not only from individual functioning, but for the health of our communities, both locally and globally. There are many approaches to trauma healing, and I hope we discuss many of those in this podcast. We hope that you all are all We hope that you are all taking good care of yourselves and your community in ways that support your body and mind. We're trying to provide valuable resources on our social media accounts to support our mental health community and beyond during these trying times. If you haven't already, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We hope you can benefit from this content. And if you have any suggestions, please hit us up. We will do our best to provide you with support and resource you need. You can also sign up for our free self-care for mental health professionals online course, which provides short guided practices and information every day for six days in your email box, if that support would be helpful to you. And now onto our conversation with Yolanda Harper. Yolanda Harper is a therapist by trade, a licensed clinical social worker specializing in trauma and post-traumatic growth. But her most meaningful work is to bear witness to people's stories of struggle, strife, grit, and growth. Currently, she loves doing this work in individual and couples intensive format. Yolanda is the founder and director of Harper Therapy in Lutz, Florida, a perfectly imperfect business owner, therapist, researcher, trainer, and teacher. She is a master accelerated resolution therapist, trainer, and TEDx speaker. Yolanda is also a wife and mom to three human children and two therapy dogs, Golden Doodles, Toby, and Hobbs. Yolanda, welcome to Integrative Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me today, Jennifer. I'm so excited to chat with you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and learn about ART and so much more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my jam, man. Let's talk. <laughs> well, you know, let's just start with the, the pressing question some people might have on their minds that maybe aren't familiar with mm-hmm. ART. So what is Accelerated Resolution Therapy? Accelerated Resolution Therapy is a cutting-edge, frontline trauma therapy. Um, It is an eye movement-based therapy, so um, not traditional talk therapy. And what we find is that it really gets at the core of those traumatic experiences to bring hope, growth, and healing. Mm. And I'm sure we'll get more into how it does that and what it looks different than traditional talk therapy and all of that. And um, I noticed that when I was listening to your TED talk, one of the ways that you introduced and described ART was with stories. So both your clients' experiences and your experience with ART. And I'm just curious if we could start our conversation about that maybe with one of those stories or case studies. 
Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I knew I was a later to life, like returning to grad school student, um, kind of an older student. And I knew going into it that I wanted to focus on trauma. Given my own history, I think most of us kind of serve from our own story. So I remember in graduate school being in my trauma class and hearing about EMDR. And I remember thinking, that's some really weird stuff right there. I don't know about that. <laughs> and then in my internship, I was at um, a VA placement and I had the experience of sitting in on a prolonged exposure session with a Vietnam veteran. And I remember leaving that session and thinking, I don't know what that EMDR thing is. It sounds really weird, but it's got to, there's got to be something better or something different than prolonged exposure because that was just traumatizing for me, re-traumatizing for, you know, the client. Um, so when a colleague told me about accelerated resolution therapy, kind of had its origin in EMDR and then expanded from there, the protocol for ART expanded from EMDR. I was very intrigued. And then each of the trainings has an experiential component, whereas a trainee, you go through your own ART sessions. And that was my first taste of that, you know, of having accelerated resolution therapy and just the magnitude of healing, just that one session in my training brought. And there have been multiple sessions since then. But it cut such to like the depth of what was really going on because, you know, it's an experiential training. I'm coming into the training thinking, I'm going to work on something easy breezy, you know. <laughs> and my brain said, no, that's not what you need right now. Here's what you need. And so that's what I ended up working on in that session. And it was just so powerful. It was something that I thought was coming out in my marriage relationship that really went back to my childhood. And it was just really powerful. Mm. And that was in your own training mm -hmm. with having no experience with it. Maybe did you have any other background of doing trauma work with yourself or was that your first modality in that? That was the first modality to that, to that depth. Yes. I, I had other therapy, other talk therapy, but that was the first thing that had gotten to just the heart of the matter. Wow. And, and what I'm hearing is that it was more than just an intellectual experience that you felt it in your body. <laughs> Absolutely. And as a trainer now, my invitation to the clinicians that I'm training is, you know, allow this. I know it's super vulnerable as a professional to be amongst colleagues and to do this experiential piece, but it's also an opportunity to have the experience of the magnitude of the therapy that you're going to be using with your clients and an invitation to remember what it's like to be on the client side of, you know, the client facing side of things. Um, and I will say without a doubt that having that experience has allowed me to lean in some of, into some of the hardest sessions with clients. Um, so I know that I, I, I know where I'm drawing from because I've felt it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and kind of let's getting a little bit more 
into the details of um, what happens in an ART session. I know that doing some research, I read that it does utilize eye movements, but it seemed to have a lot more components than EMDR uh, because I personally am trained in EMDR and um, eye movements are just a part of that. And it talked about imagery. It talked about gestalt and all kinds of stuff. So maybe it's getting a little more detailed about what happens in the ART session. So if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of ask you, since you are trained in EMDR, I'm always curious with this conversation because I'm, I'm trained in ART, but not EMDR. So what would be some of those things that as you read about ART, you thought, wow, that's a little different than my experience of EMDR. I'm, I'm curious if you don't mind me asking. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the, the, the EMDR that I was trained in, we focus on um, identifying core beliefs within a neural network that the trauma might be associated with. And that the, the process looks at, it's, it seems more CBT in that way, that we're finding the core belief. And then of course we use the, the movements or the tappers, and then we're trying to desensitize the initial response and then re kind of program a positive core belief. What seemed different with ART to me was that you're using um, imagery and guided imagination to shift some of the most intense parts of the memory. And that's not at all, that's not something we do in EMDR, but it's appealing to me. That was one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So ART was founded in 2008 by Lainey Rosenzweig. She was trained in EMDR, and as she was going through EMDR consultation, she was told by her consultant, I don't know what it is that you're doing, but this is not EMDR, so stop doing it this way or call it something different. And she said, well, what I'm doing is working, so I'm going to call it something different. Um, but those are the primary differences between EMDR and ART. And again, I, I will say this with a caveat. I'm not trained in EMDR. It's just my understanding and having these conversations with clinicians who are trained in EMDR and some papers that have been written. Um, that we use solely the eye movements. That's the form of bilateral stimulation that we use. So it's, you know, our hand, typically our hand uh, helping to facilitate because that way we can stay in track with the client. And we are focusing more on, it's a much more somatic and a much more image-based kind of processing through. And what we know is, you know, just with the emotional seeding of those traumatic memories that we're speaking more to emotions than cognitions. And when we speak more to emotions and, and the somatic experience of the event, the cognitions change naturally. And um, it's, it's based considerably on the conceptualization of memory reconsolidation. So when we pull up that distressing event, and calm sensations with the eye movements and then bring in positive imagery and rescripting that helps to process the trauma and allow it to be stored in long-term memory storage as opposed to right there in the, in the amygdala and the fight, flight, freeze parts of the brain. So those are, so that's kind of an overview of some of the, the differences between ART and EMDR. Mm -hmm. I think that you um, kind of nailed it with that having not been trained in the one, um, because that does seem, and the other thing that seems, um, interesting to me is the accelerated part. And as through some of my research, it talked about that you do several sessions, um, closer together 
And I'm curious about that as well of what is the accelerated piece of that? I think the accelerated piece, and this um, was confirmed through the studies that we, that have been done through the University of South Florida, between three to five sessions is the average that we find significant change in whatever um, symptoms clients might be experiencing. I think a primary, another differentiation between EMDR and ART is that we're very concisely focused on one event. There are some rare exceptions to that where, you know, I, I talk about having a weed of a plant and then the root, you know, and so sometimes we start by what happened to me during my training. I'm like, well, let's address this weed. And really it was a root thing. So that's the only difference, but it's not a, a free flowing kind of one to the next experience. It's a very concise uh, framework. And so we're able to work through um, an experience in a 60 to 90 minute session so that clients can have significant relief. Um, I think given that we are able to have sessions basically um, based on the clinician's intuition and, and experience and decision to like, you can do them back to back. You can work on different things pretty consecutively without a, a long period of time in between, which is one of the reasons that I kind of put it into an intensive format the way that I have. That makes sense. And I do think that um, can be appealing and effective in multiple ways, not just for clients and especially who might have been in previous forms of trauma treatment, which like you mentioned, prolonged exposure and uh, uh, other potentially re-traumatizing modalities that maybe were taught, I don't want to say the olden days, but that might have seemed to be more um, part of the mainstream modality for treating trauma, but that that it, there's no limit to it. People are scared. That, oh, are you, I'm not going to have to relive my trauma over and over. Do you want me to talk about it? And ART is that part of the process? Do they have to even share the memory with you? So the beautiful thing about ART is that although although they are re-experiencing the, the event in short chunks, that's part of the definition of trauma therapy, right? There has to be some kind of re-experiencing. But with ART, it's in short chunks, and we're using the eye movements to calm sensations as we go along. So we're using eye movements to help the brain process the event, but we're also taking breaks in between so that their level of distress is not reaching max state. We're able to bring that down and then readdress the memory and then come back to calming sensations and then readdress the memory and come back. So it's broken up and doesn't become too overwhelming. Which, yeah, definitely seems different than some of the approaches that are staying in it, stay in it. Like my sense of, I've never experienced it or been trained in it, but my sense is that it's stay in it till it doesn't, affect you anymore right yeah did that ever work when you saw that and was that well that was you know that was the one experience that i observed and that was he i'm not sure how far into his prolonged exposure treatment he was he was it certainly was still distressing to me. my bigger concern with the veteran that i witnessed the prolonged exposure session was more so the homework of having to go home and re-experience events 
without the support of a professional in the space with them. So there's no homework with ART, and nor, do, nor does a client have to verbalize their traumatic experience. There have been total sessions that I've gone through where I don't know exactly all of the details of the traumatic memory that are being worked on. And it's possible to have a, an effective outcome even with that. Mm. So in kind of further painting this picture, is it possible to share what an ART session would look like or are they so different for each person? Yeah. So a kind of overview of ART is, you know, after a typical intake, so I have clients come in and we do a regular intake, I get a history and as I'm taking a history, I'm kind of conceptualizing in an ART format what, what will be scenes, what will be these events that we're, we're going to be kind of focusing on that will help alleviate some of the distress, some of the, the symptoms that are bringing a client in. Um, and after we've gotten that framework, even during that first session, I will introduce eye movements to clients just for the calming effect. And I will teach them how to use the eye movements at home so that they have a tool to help self-regulate. Um, another one of the differences between ART and EMDR is that we don't have this lengthy period of time where we're resource building because the eye movements for us are the resource. Then when we're getting into an ART session, we'll identify the event that we will be focusing on. We call that the scene. And then we alternate between playing through the, having the client play through the scene as if they're watching a movie and then calming those sensations with the eye movements. We go back and forth between those. And then throughout the protocol, we do the rescripting where the client gets to have a different experience. They keep the knowledge, but they lose the pain. So they'll always have the facts of the event that happened without the emotional hook. And that's the memory reconsolidation piece. That when we, when we bring up um, a distressing event, but we wrap it around a present, uh, a pleasant, or we associate it with a with a pleasant experience. It, the distressing event, the traumatic experience, loses the intensity. One of my favorite metaphors is the the movie Inside Out. The Pixar movie Inside Out, I think, does a great job at kind of conceptualizing that memory reconsolidation. And then. It sounds like, I don't know the term for it, but while the session's happening, if, so say the uh, person is recalling a memory, um, can we just use like an example of being um, robbed at gunpoint? Mm -hmm. like, so they're recalling it. Is there like a window of tolerance or something where you might come back out of that, calm the body? We're doing it in steps as we go along. That's the beautiful ah. thing about it. And that's what allows clients to kind of stay in the game, so to speak. Um, that we're, the, that experience with that being robbed at gunpoint is a, a specific um, period of time, 60 seconds to a minute, or 60 seconds to a minute and a half or whatever, right? And then, then we ask them to put that experience to the side and notice what's happening in their body. So it's very somatically based. We're asking them to notice what's happening in their body. And then we're calming those sensations with the eye movements too. And we don't go back to the robbery at gunpoint until they're calm enough to take the next step. They don't have to be completely calm. They just need to be calm enough to be able to go back 
into the memory. And so we're just kind of breaking it up like that. Okay. So that's, I like that. It's not up for you or the client to decide. It's all, it's almost like they know, okay, if I can do 60 seconds mm-hmm. of thinking right. about this. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about the somatic based, just kind of describing what they're noticing in their body and then um, resourcing with the eye movements. Okay. And then when it feels, when time is right or when the body's been calmed or they, when they're thinking of the scene, no longer have the activation is when that maybe imagery um, of a more positive experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we go into greater detail with that, obviously with the training, but yes, after they've gone through the traumatic memory and calm the body, right. Um, then eventually we move to that step of, okay, now you get to change this however you would like. You get to rescript it. And I like that because I don't know if you've experienced this in your practice, but sometimes working with people, and maybe we even have personal experience with this, the idea of rescripting can be hard for people or like letting it go because it is facts. It did happen. And some people maybe even hang on, want to hang on to some of that pain because they remember how this has shaped their, their story and their life. And I love that you make it very clear. This is your story. And also it, you don't have, it doesn't have to hurt so bad every single time or, or even now. Right. Right. And, and usually by the time people make it into my office, they have gone through other trauma modalities where they're ready to have that release of that pain. Yeah. But, but it is very helpful to let them know ahead of time, you know, the rescripting doesn't make the events go away. You'll always have the events. And like you said, you know, you, you can still have the memory of that without being in such pain every time you recall it. And from your experience with this work with trauma, what is, what typically happens with clients? It is really amazing and beautiful. Um, And even after doing this for, I was trained in 2003. Um, Even after all of these years of doing it, I still sometimes am amazed at how a client can come in and just be so weighed by the trauma. And then as they leave, they're lighter, they're happier, they feel stronger. I mean, you can just see, even throughout a session, you can see such a change in affect. You can see such a change in body posture. And I I don't know, I, I, I almost don't have words for it because it's such a, it's such an honor to be able to, to bear witness to that, you know, Mm, that healing. Yes. That healing that is, that is attainable. And that is part of my passion in talking about ART because for so long we have lived with this lie that trauma is something that you have to figure out how to have coping mechanisms for, you know, um, even recently a client came in and said, you know, I'm having these panic attacks and flashbacks and I just need some breathing techniques or some, you know, some coping skills. And I said, "Mm, those are helpful. And, you know, 
these are not the panic attack and the flashbacks and nightmares are not something that you have to live with for the rest of your life. There's healing for that through, you know, modalities like ART. Um, so that is just breathtaking. I don't know. It gives me goosebumps. I don't have words for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why maybe a lot of people get into this work in mental health is um, the honor and the privilege and the witnessing of that. Just even talking about the affect, um, that's a beautiful thing to witness and hold space for. And I know with um, a lot of trauma work, specifically like somatic experiencing, for example, there is a focus on your regulation and presence and that container holding slash building with the client. And I'm curious in ART what you notice about your own personal um, regulation and uh, space holding. Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. Um, one of the more recent studies with accelerated resolution therapy at the University of South Florida kind of got waylaid by COVID, unfortunately, but it was a mechanistic study of like what is actually happening in participants' brains when they go through a session. And so the participants, the clients had EEG monitors on as well as heart rate monitors. But interestingly enough, the clinicians also had heart rate monitors on. And um, so from the EEG, and I don't know that these results are actually going to be written up and published because, like I said, the, unfortunately, the study got stopped. Um, but there was a change in the EEG from beta brainwave activity, like the problem solving, you know, uh, part of the part of the brain to gamma waves, which are more spiritual spiritually focused. So that was cool. But one of the things that came from that study that was most like, again, breathtaking for me was the synchronicity of the heart rates between the client and the clinician. Like they were almost completely in sync, and that was amazing. So. Yes, there are those times that, you know, the mirror, mirror neurons are mirror neurons, you know, when in actually with the eye movement therapy, I think I'm even more attuned to every little nuance, every little change of affect, every change in, I think what I kind of pick up on as my client's somatic experience, I'm experiencing in some ways too. So Sometimes it is I'm sitting in session and I'm reminding myself, you know, ground, ground into your seat, ground into the floor, take some breaths, notice, you know, notice the, the tension here, you know, uh, take some breaths and hold some space during this difficult process for, for the client. And so that energy kind of goes both ways, I think. Mm. And I've heard from other clinicians that do more mind-body approaches to trauma that it actually... Uh, helps because you the the client doesn't even necessarily have to share everything. They're kind of having their own experience, and it makes um, doing trauma work more sustainable with less burnout. Have you noticed that? Absolutely, absolutely. And and having the eye movements as my own resource. So if things get really intense during a session, um, I as I'm helping to facilitate the eye movements for the client, might do some eye movements myself. You know. Um, so that's a, a dual process in and of itself too, but, um, it, it is that recognition, our own, as clinicians, our own 
mindfulness of our somatic experiences and the way that our bodies are responding and regulating those things for ourselves definitely I think allows me to, to stay in the game for longer that and I don't again I'm not necessarily hearing a client's traumatic story sometimes they prefer not to share and that's fine you know so that helps that helps too with the vicarious traumatization Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something I heard that sounds powerful and I'm just now getting more, I guess, research or um, information around co-regulation and resonance. Cause we know, and at least I was trained early on that a lot, most of the healing takes place with a therapeutic relationship or you've seen that like 80%, something like that. The modality is a smaller portion. There's other life circumstances. So when I'm hearing that the heartbeats are the same, that's just screams co-regulation to me, which yes. what experience do, do people that are experiencing intense somatic reactions and emotions with a trauma, can they have that co-regulation? Most people, my sense is, is that out in the world, um, without that container, it, it, it probably goes up like the regular, it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, yeah, I mean, that experience intensifies because a lot of times they're isolating, right? And so they're re-experiencing those things on their own and it just goes through the roof. But yeah, that was when I, when I heard the, the co-regulation of the heartbeats, that's the first thing, Jennifer, that I thought of that, you know, like what they teach in graduate school, at least that component is so true. Like it's the therapeutic relationship that is the most healing. It is you bearing witness in whatever whatever framework that looks like, right? The modality is secondary. It's bearing witness to people's experience. Mm-hmm. And as we're go- going deeper into this particular modality, um, something else that I, that's I've noticed that I think could be helpful for clients too is that you said they're coming from different treatments and. Sometimes it can be really frustrating thinking here, I'm going to spend all this money, all this time. I mean, there's some approaches, which not to knock them because there's everybody might have a better, each person might have a different fit. However, some people don't like the idea of thinking of being in therapy for three years or something. And so uh, I really, it's, and I can see even on the business side where insurances would like to pay for a solution focused or a modality that has less sessions. Um, but so it seems like kind of a win-win and in that, um, that intensive style I read and I don't know how you do it or if it's like, if it has to be done this way, but I read that the sessions are, um, several times in a week. And I noticed with your therapy, um, with Harper therapy that you also offer intensive services. And I'm really curious of hearing more about that and how that fits in with ART. Yeah, I love the intensives. They were kind of a long time. They were, they were a bit of some time in the making. And then it was really precipitated by, you know, a, again, a personal experience where, where I was looking for something that I could just take a couple of days, you know, and just go and like be in the work. And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that wasn't like a group format or it, I just didn't, I couldn't find anything. And 
over the years, I have had the great honor of working in different combat veteran retreat formats from Lone Survivor Foundation to Veterans Alternative to Warrior Mission at Ease. And so I was familiar with this concept of these participants coming in on a Thursday and just the almost different people that they were by the time that they left on Monday. So that was amazing. And I thought, how, what are some ways that I can somewhat replicate? So of course the, the, the retreats are, are totally different in that they incorporate other um, complementary modalities that either weren't a fit for me in my private practice or would just, you know, not quite the same fit. But I was like, how do I replicate some of those outcomes in the context of my business? Wow, what would it look like if we, if I took two days, did extended sessions in the morning and the afternoons of those two days, um, allowed the client to have some complimentary um, additional um, non-traditional modality that helps embed the work that they did at the end of the first day and wrap that up in some time together. What would that look like? You know, so kind of tease that out and have put that into place. And that is my clinical work these days. And it's, I love it. It's amazing. It is a great opportunity. And again, these are oftentimes people who have had rounds of other types of therapy, or they've been able in their lives to keep their trauma experience contained by staying busy with work or what have you. And then all of a sudden COVID hits or retirement hits or things slow down in their lives. And all of the things that they've stayed so busy on the hamster wheel to keep, you know, contained start bubbling up. And, and there's this panic of like, what is happening? Um, so that's, that's the framework that I have put um, the clinical work that I do and my, my version of intensives. Yeah. What are some of the non-traditional um, or alternative healing modalities to, to embed the therapeutic work that you sometimes work with or recommend? Yeah. So it can be a regular massage. It can be a sensory float. Um, kind of where I'm leaning now is, is solely offering a craniosacral massage. Um, you know, that's the nervous system kind of components of calming of the nervous system components, right? People have worked through um, these brain-based modalities, these brain and body-based modalities, and it's just another like cherry on the top to allow that work to kind of embed and release anything else somatic that might be kind of hanging around after the end of that first day so that, you know, they can go into their evening and rest and get some well-deserved rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with an intensive because it's like, as you know, intense. <laughs> That's the whole point of it. But at the same time, to carve out that much space for your body to do the work um, 
it definitely beats every other week an hour of therapy even though for some people that's a fit i can see i've had personally benefits from doing intensive work myself mostly in group format because that's what's offered like programs um but it's interesting because it all that fits with how the body processes trauma is that it needs to do something with it and we've seen with peter levine's work the the animals like shaking stuff off and movement mm-hmm. It just makes sense, but I can see where if you're getting traditional treatment, you might not always schedule that right after your appointments or make the time. Right, right. And and I am guessing that as the intensives evolve, um, that at some point it, it might be more of a retreat or a getting away. Because still what I do find is even with that relaxing modality at the end of the first day, oftentimes clients are going back to their homes you know, and just like in the middle of things again. So um, I always kind of take what I'm doing and say, what, you know, what is my highest and best? How can I kind of make some adjustments, tweak? How can I learn and get some feedback from clients' experience and, and just put an offering out there that's going to be my highest and best and bring the greatest amount of healing um, that a client's capable of in that moment. So. I'm sure it will continue to evolve, but it's also that concept of a lot of times clients are worried about doing trauma work because they're afraid of opening Pandora's box. And oftentimes what I say is that I get that, but what you don't realize is that you're living inside of Pandora's box. And these two days is still this container around let's open the box do the work, get the relief. And then part of the intensive is a two-hour follow-up at some point within um, a month of the intensive. So that way we can do any kind of cleanup work or kind of touch base on what maybe has bubbled up after the big trauma work has um, been done. And I know this is something that you um, I don't know if you just started it, but I know that it's kind of on the horizon and evolving as it goes. And do you mind sharing um, any experiences that uh, your clients have had or even you have had in this intensive style work? Well, the most recent client just said how they thought that they felt like a new person at the end of doing the trauma work, um, it, throughout the intensive, it is a combination, it primarily focused on accelerated resolution therapy, but I'm also a Daring Way facilitator of Dr. Brene Brown's work, so I incorporate a lot of um, trauma, shame, resiliency in, in those components in as well, a lot of boundary work that is a beautiful fit with ART um, as well, you know. So it, is very, I, I, what I'm hearing from clients is life-changing. Yeah, and, and that what you said about, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are mental health professionals definitely understand and can empathize, but also um, that idea of opening Pandora's box. That's what I see in my experience. My previous experience is that 
there's just a lot of fear around touching it, going there, intentionally thinking about it. But yet, as we know, it's your, it's in your body. It's already happening. Right. And it's already probably causing discomfort to say the least. So the idea of a safe container and a space to say, okay, I'm focusing on this now and to really be able to set aside two days, however many days of I'm going to allow this and um, in a safe place with somebody who is trained, I can just see that. I can see that being life-changing. I yeah. want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Some crazy well, yeah, no, it is. It is. It, it is what I have looked for for myself. Right. And, and, and one of the reasons that I, have created it is because, you know, there, there is a need for it. And I have benefit from doing the work and I will, will continue to benefit from doing my own work. So that's, that's an important component of it too, of, of recognizing. And I think that helps hold the space for clients too, that they, you know, because people who've experienced trauma have a, have a very attuned BS meter. So they know, you know, they know. And so when they are able to sit in, in a space where they can hear from someone, you are not alone and you're not crazy. Like the, the things that are bubbling up for you make sense. And this is what happens. This is what we call trauma. A lot of the people who come to work with me, don't even recognize that what they've, they've lived through is traumatic. They don't, they don't use the word trauma around their experiences. So, you know, that has been um, something for me to, to keep in mind as I am speaking to these people. You know, you have been through hard things in life and you're feeling really anxious and you have these panic attacks and you have these flashbacks and even though you don't think that or you wouldn't label it trauma it's left a mark it's left a mark on your body it's left a mark on your relationships it's yeah i'm hearing like a lot of validation with that or being seen and heard and that uh, um because it's almost like there's you already are experiencing the physical and emotional and all the effects of the trauma, but then also that additional piece of, and now there's something wrong with me because I can't manage it or I'm crazy or whatever it is that comes up. And I can see that also being a barrier to getting to doing the work in the first place. Right. Yeah. I think it's an invitation when we can put words around, you know, and, and again, one of the reasons that, I did the TED talk and shared kind of stories of, of clients was to say, yes, trauma is combat and trauma is, you know, the things that people typically define trauma as, but trauma is also adverse childhood experiences and verbal abuse and domestic abuse and physical abuse and racism and bullying, you know, like these are trauma. These are traumatic experiences of, as well. And Yes, it's going to leave a mark. These experiences leave marks too. Mm -hmm. And yeah, actually, um, as we're kind of winding down slash moving out from the micro, maybe to the more macro, you mentioned right then, I'm curious of 
if the trauma doesn't necessarily have one specific memory, so say we're, we're working with intergenerational trauma, we're working with the trauma of racism, which I've seen being called post-traumatic slavery disorder. And where there might not be a, a one particular memory or event, but just a mm-hmm. collection of maybe events from not even just your own lifetime. Does ART have a space for that type of trauma? I what, One of the things that I love most about ART is that I am just following my clients' brains, you know, and I, I am a, so I love to put together jigsaw puzzles and, you know, through COVID that has been one of the things that I've been spending a lot more time doing. And I don't know if anyone else likes to do j- jigsaw puzzles, but the way that I make a jigsaw puzzle is, you know, I do the outside pieces first. And so I have this framework, you know, I've got the outside pieces. And then I'm like, well, where do these, where, let me start with this. Let me start with, there's a pop of color. Let me start with that pop of color and find the pieces that might go there. And then where does this piece fit in? And even with clients who don't have those big T traumas, like the one and done kind of thing, um, there is still um, the theme of the trauma. And with eye movements, we can still hone in on the experience that most resonates with that theme and we can work on that experience so we can put together that piece or that part of the jigsaw puzzle and with the way that the brain stores trauma a trigger is anything that looks like smells like tastes like feels like that experience so oftentimes if we hone in on the first or the worst of whatever the brain identifies as a scene to work on, you know, and again, this is subconsciously where we're connecting with that through sets of eye movements, then oftentimes that will generalize to the other experiences. So someone who has been sexually assaulted for years, right? We don't have to go through every single one of those assaults. We can focus on the first or the worst, and then see what generalizes from there, and then touch base what, you know, what is left. Is there any cleanup work of those things that needs to to happen? That makes sense. You explained that perfectly, and I love that. Is it a metaphor or an analogy? I get those mixed up of the jigsaw puzzle. Either way is a, a beautiful way to look at it, and it makes sense because all the pieces are connected, but knowing where to start, especially in trauma for people experiencing it can be really scary and difficult. Well, which, which one do I start with? Where do we go here? Like, right. So we have all of those and it sounds like this is a way of um, holding all of it, but also not having to remember or think about every single, every single one. Right. Right. And that's part of the, it's ingrained in the protocol too. that generalization piece where we're just letting the brain pile up any other experiences. And you don't even, the client doesn't even have to identify specifically what those experiences are, but the subconscious part of the brain knows. And so that's really helpful too. And, you know, one of the things that I do love about ART is that the client can test the waters if they're ready for the first and worst, great. And some clients would just come in and they're like, I'm ready. Let's do the, let's do the big thing. 
some others are like, I don't know. Yeah. Right. So we can start with something smaller so that they can have the experience of the protocol and the relief. And again, that's one of the reasons that I introduced the eye movements at that first session, because the eye movements can be such a buy-in, the calming effect of the eye movements, you know, and, and the client re-experiencing that calming effect regularly throughout the session helps them to take the next step. And even subsequent sessions, sometimes I have to remind clients, you know, hey, we're going to work on this, this thing, this big thing, uh, you know, and then I can say, yeah, I know, I get it. I'm here with you. I'm here with you. You're not in this alone. And remember the benefit. Remember how you feel at the end of the session. Yes. And those reminders can be very helpful because sometimes, yeah, sometimes we just don't, you don't want to go there. It's oh, like, for oh, sure. Not today. <laughs> Do I have to? <laughs> right. I'm currently um, in, in my own personal um, life receiving, working with Hakomi method. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a somatic therapy method. And some days I go, I'm just like, and there's very little talking. It's all body oriented. And some days I'm like, oh my gosh, I just don't want to. And, um, but I love that my therapist is like you, very passionate. Um, her presence is phenomenal. And so like with some gentle and beautiful, gentle, encouraging that I'm in control. It's like, okay, I can go there because I also know that I can go back out. And I think that I'm hearing that with ART, that there's a security with knowing you can come in and out. It's your choice. Yeah. And, and I do think a lot of it is the holding of space by the clinician, right? A lot of it is saying, you know what? Yes, this is really hard. And part of the struggle is that you've been trying to do it alone. And you don't have to do it alone here. You've got me. You've got the dogs. You know, <laughs> the dogs are usually pretty helpful for that too, because one, you know, one of them especially is like on the couch next to the client. You know, so oftentimes the client has one hand on the dog as they're going through an ART session. That certainly helps. But you know, it is holding that space of like, yes, we can, we can do this, right? And you're here um, because you want to feel better, and this is the path to that. Right. But we're not going to overwhelm you with it. We're going to, you know, chunk things out. Right. So a lot of times people say, well, does ART work with this population or with this condition or what have you? There are three um, components to whether or not ART is um, appropriate. One, can a client um, hold a thought? Uh, can they move their eyes back and forth? And are they motivated? Those are the three criteria. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter if they have an eye condition. It doesn't matter like if they're able to hold a thought, move their eyes back and forth because ART is more the movement of the eyes from left to right than it is focusing on. So people who are blind can go through an ART session as long as they can move their eyes back and forth. And, and are they motivated? Are they ready? Are they ready? Well, that helps for assessment and referral. <laughs> at least in my end I'm like okay well check check and check yeah and is there um a an association or um a, a governing body that a someone a therapist like me could look up and find a practitioner in my area if I did want to refer out yeah so um RCRR the Ro Rosenzweig Center for Rapid Recovery is Laney Rosenzweig's um business 
and um, she does basic advanced and enhanced trainings. Um, and I will make sure that you get the web address because I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, Art International is another organization who does trainings and has a listing of trained clinicians. So I do um, basic ART trainings through Art International, um, but you can also reference their website for clinicians across the country. You can reference both of the websites for clinicians who are trained um, across the country. And there's also references to each of the published articles for the research if anyone is interested in learning more about the research around ART. Awesome. Thank you. We definitely will link that in our show notes. And we discussed this previously, but if you're familiar with this podcast and also how the Academy approaches education and professional development is that personal development and professional development go hand in hand. And we like to offer, instead of just talking about it, we like to offer and in um, experiences or guided practices, even right now, that we can just get a little bit of that regulation or work done. And so I'm curious if there's one that you'd like to share with us today. Yes. So what I've found in the trauma work that I do, and, you know, as we are talking today, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic um, and collective trauma even beyond the pandemic with racial issue. You know, I, we could go on and on about what is happening um, in our society today. But just in the trauma work that I do, after I was trained in ART, I thought there's, there's still a piece that I need to address a little bit more specifically and a little bit more dynamically. And that's where Brene Brown's work came in with um, shame resiliency and a big piece of what she focuses on in her research is the research of Dr. Kristen Neff around self-compassion. And the self-compassion piece with my clients, I, I weave that in with all of my sessions and certainly in the intensives as well as personally. Um, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. So I'd just like to invite us in this moment. There are three components of self-compassion. So the first component of self-compassion is that mindfulness component of like, this is just tough. This moment is challenging. I'm suffering. I'm in pain. Ugh, this is crap. So whatever that sounds like in your words, just the acknowledgement of like, ugh, this is tough. The second component of self-compassion is common humanity. Common humanity is so beautiful just to remind ourselves that we are not alone in going through hard things. Life is hard for all of us. We're not meant to, to go through it alone. We're not meant to carry the burdens on our own. And I think a lot of times we can isolate when we're in those moments of difficulty and think, well, you know, it's just me or if I were a better person or if I did this X, Y, and Z better or if I were on my game or whatever, uh, things would be different and I wouldn't suffer at all. Poppycosh. The third component of self-compassion and oftentimes what is the most challenging is that self-kindness piece. The talking to ourselves with kindness, being a, a good friend to ourselves, 
So an invitation in this moment is to find a self-compassionate touch, whether that be a touch with hands on your heart or with your hands on your stomach, with giving yourself maybe a hug, with even putting your hands on your own face like you would a young child. We are mammals, so we're wired for touch, whatever feels good in this moment. And just talking to yourself with kindness and saying, you know what, sweetheart? Yeah, this is tough. This moment is tough, but it won't last forever. And we'll get through this. You're not alone. You can do it. So whatever those words are in your own words, those those words of kindness to self, just take a moment to just breathe that in. And may we remember that this practice of being a good friend to ourselves translates into the work that we do. And in that, we can create a different world to live in. How different the world would look if we all had these moments of pause and speaking kindly to ourselves. So I thank you each for taking this moment to pause. Oh, Yolanda, I needed that. I, and I didn't realize I did specifically with the um, touching. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm like, oh, tears are brought to my eyes. I didn't even realize why or what needed to happen. But yeah, my just that one moment. It was like my body just was able to do something. Yeah. Isn't it great? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, just as we're ending this conversation, is there anything else that your fills need to be said? Anything else in your heart? Anything to maybe end with? Or do we feel complete? I think that a a beautiful cherry on top of um, to our practice of self-compassion is just gratitude. So thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you to those of you who are listening for, for taking the time to listen. Um, Thank you for the work that you're doing in your own communities. Um, Thank you for the hope and growth and healing that you are bringing to your clients and just how all of that just radiates from these moments. And gratitude to you as well for taking your time to share today and your passion and commitment and presence in this work shows, shines through audio, Zoom, video. I can feel it filling up the space that I'm in right now. And uh, thank you for the work that you do and, and sharing it with us and others it's a beautiful thing that we do right (laughs) yes well thank you so much and hopefully we can talk again awesome sounds good
Thank you so much for joining us today on Integrative Conversations. And I hope you enjoyed this particular conversation. I know I did. Yolanda Harper is an amazing clinician, and I really enjoyed hearing her wisdom, theories, philosophy, and practices for working with trauma. We hope that you're enjoying this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And I added a link to the show notes with our speak pipe, which is a way that you can send us a voice message. So if you have any comments about this episode, if you have any suggestions for future episodes or even guests, we would love to hear it. Leave us a message on our SpeakPipe voice messaging system, and we will respond. And if you want, we can even play your message on our next podcast. So hit us up and take care.